This is Voices of Texas, the podcast featuring the most interesting Texans you've never heard of. Recording in Midland, Texas, here is your host, Matthew Hinman. Welcome back to Voices of Texas, the podcast about Texans. And this is episode three, recorded on December 8th, 2014. Now, before we get started, I just want to mention that if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave me a review in either iTunes or Stitcher. Your feedback is invaluable and I will greatly appreciate it. And a five-star rating really means a lot to me. Also, if you can, I would be grateful for any support you can contribute. And to help out, just visit patreon.com slash voices of Texas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash voices of Texas. Just select a level that you think you can support. And of course, there are rewards for supporting this podcast. Again, thank you for any contribution that you can give. Well, most of you have figured out at this point that I'm no journalist. And although I've spent years working in the media biz, I really cannot claim that title. I'll just stick with podcaster for now. But my guest today is a true journalist and one who has reported on high profile stories and even written an unauthorized book about a well-known corporation. I'm talking about Catherine Jones. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matthew. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Catherine, you and your husband, Dan, you teach journalism there at Tarleton State University in Stephenville, Texas now, but your past years in journalism have taken you with companies like the New York Times and Texas Monthly, all the way down to small town publications like the Glen Rose Reporter and the Glen Rose Current, of which you're now the editor. What got you started in journalism? Well, I, I always liked uh, to write, and I was fortunate in college um, at Trinity University in San Antonio to have a, a mentor who saw something in me and encouraged me, and uh, the next thing I knew, I was still hearing in journalism and English, and once I got out of college, I got a job at my uh, hometown newspaper, the Corpus Christi Collar Times, and... Um, I've been involved in journalism ever since. So um, one thing I try to do at Tarleton is to mentor students the way um, the way I got mentored and to help them and encourage them and and um, hopefully create a new generation of journalists. Of course, the business has certainly changed a lot, as you as you very well know. Well, absolutely. So how do you how do you motivate students uh, in 21st century journalism? How do you get them inspired to 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 do new, these new things that are taking place? Well, we, every semester we always ha- have I don't know, three, four, five students who are very, very motivated, self-motivated. And then others um, never really thought about being in journalism and discover that they, you know, have an aptitude or interest in it. And the way we motivate them today um, is through, um, basically through multimedia. Um, The business has changed so much since I first started out with basically, you know, I was basically a print journalist with a notebook. And um, um, the only technology I had when I got started was basically with the, you know, the computer that I wrote stories on. These days, uh, we have our students not only writing for print, but that's just one of the products. They We have a website at tarletontexanews.net. Um, 
they actually came to us and said, hey, we'd like to occasionally have a print product. So we publish a few newspapers each semester that they uh, that they produce. We have a daily broadcast, podcasts. Um, we used a, an app called Cover Live to cover the election future. Uh, we hand them, you know, uh, uh, so, um, cameras to do photography with, um, uh, to shoot video. A lot of them just use their smartphones. And so it's all about being mobile, um, being versatile. And so in a way, they have a lot more opportunities than than I really did when I got out of journalism school because basically I've... I was designed to be a print journalist, and that was it. But but these students today, they have to do a little bit of everything, and um, and they really gravitate towards it. They're just naturals at it. I mean, a lot of these students, you know, uh, they 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 couldn't imagine life without the internet and the smartphone. And and uh, of course, I, I tell them stories about the the dark ages when the internet didn't exist, and I had to go to the library to do research and. I think they uh, uh, they find that to be rather rather quaint. <laughs> yeah, they're all part but, of the Twitter um, generation, aren't they? The, yes, yes, and and so um, um, incorporating that technology into into journalism really uh, is the name of the game for them, and it's it's the name of the game in the business these days. So at at some point, you ended up. Uh, in your career, uh, working in Dallas for the New York Times, how did how did you get there from working for the Collar Times in Corpus? Well, um, after after the Collar Times, I went to um, to Austin and covered the state legislature for a, a special section on redistricting. And um, my husband got transferred to Fort Worth to the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and so we moved up to the Dallas Fort Worth area. And um, um, I actually started out working for the Dallas Times Herald, covering technology. At that time, the high-tech sector in Dallas was really booming. And then I made the jump over to the Dallas Morning News. And uh, my husband, Dan Malone, and I both worked for the Morning News. Um, uh, I worked there for five years, and he worked there for, I think, 18. And um, I don't know. I, I, I basically just wanted – I had always wanted to freelance. So I quit my job and started freelancing, and almost immediately, um, um, the Dallas Bureau of the New York Times um, jobs open. They'd had a uh, their bureau chief had resigned, and um, I was hired on as a um, uh, contract writer. And uh, it was only supposed to last a year. It lasted. Uh, several years along the way, I got to write for the Times National Section, Travel Section, Business Section, um, and um, and and I still continue to write for the Times. So it was um, uh, it was in retrospect the best career move ever I ever made was quitting my job and and kind of blindly striking out on my own, not knowing what I would what I would find. And really, what I found was. Uh, was a wonderful career as a freelance writer. It sounds like you've really been successful with that. And you were telling telling me once about a, a story that you you almost reluctantly covered uh, in Fort Worth during uh, the massive hailstorm in 1895. Yeah, uh, uh, we were uh, my husband and I were actually out to dinner in an Italian restaurant, 
and the sky turned this otherworldly lime green color, as it does sometimes when you get really, really bad storms in North Texas. And we were sitting there having dinner, and it started hailing, and um, the hail got larger and larger, and pretty soon it was um, about baseball size. And the um, the restaurant owner was a guy from New York who, uh, every time the hail struck the roof, he would he would say, "Oh, ow!" You know, everybody was laughing and. But we were also uh, looking out the window, watching our cars in the parking lot getting pummeled. And I was at home. Um, uh, I had left my car in the parking lot um, and the parking, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the driveway and uh, of our house. And the hail had smashed the windows, had knocked off the molding. By the time we got inside the house, uh, our kitchen roof was leaking and we had, I mean, Trees were down. It was just a mess. And the next, uh, the next day, uh, the, the Times called me and said, "Hey, can you cover this hailstorm?" And I said, "Well, I guess I've become part of the story because I can't even, I can't even get out." Um, uh, the city was trying to clear the streets, and it was just, you, you just really, you couldn't even, you couldn't even drive. And I was explaining to them about this hailstorm, and they said, "Well." Uh, we'd actually like for you to write a first-person piece, uh, which you don't see that often on, on the national page. But they said, people in New York just don't have any concept of Texas hail or this intense weather you have in North Texas. And so uh, so I sat there at my computer. Uh, I didn't have to leave the house um, and wrote a first-person story about about this Texas hailstorm. And, and they promoted it on the front page as, Kind of an, you know an ordinary night out turned um, upside down by uh, by this freak weather, and um, and I got a lot of comments about it. But you know to me it was no it was just it wasn't that it wasn't that strange. I've been through so many hailstorms now and tornadoes and hurricanes in Texas. You just kind of expect weird weather here. But but people up in New York they really don't have any concept of that about uh some insight on what it's like living in north texas yeah absolutely well now you're working on coverage uh currently of a growing problem in texas and that is care for the mentally ill can you tell me a little bit more about that yes um you know unfortunately i have uh first person experience with this which is um i mean it's been difficult from a personal level, but I think maybe on another level, maybe this is the story I was born to write. Um, my mother has had mental illness since I was a child. And uh, back then, we didn't really know what was wrong with her. Um, we just knew that um, that she was different in some ways. And she responded to things um, just not in, a, not in a normal manner. And, you know, and, and also, I mean, I'm talking about, you know, the 60s and 70s when I was growing up, there was still a really strong stigma about mental illness. And um, I remember one time um, it was suggested that she see a psychiatrist, and she got very, very you know, angry about that and and never did. And so um, just recently, she's, she's going to be 88 uh, in a few weeks. Just recently, she was finally diagnosed. And it was kind of a relief to put a name on the things that we'd been seeing in her for decades. She was diagnosed with um, 
paranoid schizophrenia with delusions. And, you know, she's thought for years that my father was trying to kill her. She's talked about goonies being in the attic, uh, people putting dust on the furniture, just all sorts of weird things. And as I said, we didn't really know what was wrong until finally she got a diagnosis and we all just, my siblings and I breathe a sigh of relief. It's like we, we finally know what we're dealing with, you know, after a lifetime of struggling with this. So, um, it, and just trying to get help from my mom made me realize um, how difficult that can be for someone who actively resists it. And um, if, you're, if you're really wealthy and you can afford to have someone um, cared for, um, or if you're really, really poor and you can get government assistance, you know, um, that's great. But for people who are in the middle class, what I've realized is you get caught in this donut hole where you don't... Um, you basically have to fend for yourself. And if, if someone does not want to receive help uh, and actively resist, it's very difficult to get somebody committed to a psychiatric facility against their will. Um, there have been a lot of laws put in place in recent years designed to protect mentally ill people from being um, committed against their will. But it's, I'm afraid that's worked against a lot of people who have a loved one who really needs help and and can't get it. So that has just been an eye-opener for me. I've posted on my Facebook page about it, and I have received more comments about that than I think anything I've ever put on Facebook. And I've had so many friends and colleagues and acquaintances say, you know, I've had the same thing happen to me with a, with a relative or a friend, and it's made me realize just how big a problem this is. So... I'm working on an article that may turn into a book, but I do think this is uh, one of the most um, ignored things in healthcare today, and it's going to continue to impact families. If you want to put a price tag on it, you know, just just um, the amount of, of 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 people being unproductive because of having to care for a loved one with an undiagnosed or untreated mental illness is is staggering. So this is the next project I'm going to work on that I that I feel very passionate about. Well, having something like that so close to home uh, really, I'm sure, drives you to to do a lot of research. Uh, have you uncovered anything specific in the healthcare system that's that's really stuck out for you as part of your research in this? Well, the main thing that stuck out has been has been this disparity between um, the kinds of care that are offered. I mean, I mean, as I said, if you're in the middle class um, and you're not, you don't qualify for certain government programs, or um, uh, or you're not in a town that offers um, that offers certain programs, you are really stuck. Um, I was really surprised to learn that in a city the size of Corpus Christi, there were only two um, licensed psychiatric wards. And so when when we finally got some help from my mom and we thought we were going to be able to get her in one of them, the beds were not available. And so um, 
I think families are the ones who get stuck with this. And, and I don't mean stuck in, I mean, we love her. We want to help her. But um, my siblings and I, sometimes we're just, we're just so uh, distraught about uh, what can, what we can do. And my, my, uh, my father is 90 years old and thankfully in early good health, he takes care of her 24 seven and it's not easy at all. And it's certainly taken a toll on him. We try to help out, but it's just kind of been this elephant in the room with our family. Um, it just kind of dominates everything. And, um, um, I just feel like it's about time that this country faced up to the fact that we have a lot of mentally ill people and they're, they're going into our prisons. They're, they're, they're becoming homeless and we are spending so much money as a, as a country trying to help, help these people. But at the same time, we're ignoring a lot of people that are kind of, as I said, caught in the middle here and the middle class seems to be uh, where, where people are really having, having a lot of trouble. So, I'm I'm just trying I'm just hoping to be able to to use my skills as a writer try to bring some attention to this and maybe and maybe get some people um, in public policy more interested in this because um, you know a lot of us are getting older and 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 I you know I worry about myself and my husband uh, when we get older you know what's going to happen uh, if one of us develops um, some kind of mental capacity. And, you know, it's kind of scary to think about. You know, we think about people's physical health and putting people in, in nursing homes or long-term health care, but uh, so many people are facing not just physical but mental illness, and they're still, we still as a country have not gotten our, our hands around this. And so I'm just hoping to bring some, maybe some, some enlightenment and some and some thought to this. I hope you can really shine a light on that because uh, I know that's been some topic of of late too on uh, some of the major media. Uh, so hopefully uh, you'll get that spotlight shined on it. Uh, perhaps one of the biggest stories that you've been able to cover, at least in recent times, is the story about the killing of Chris Kyle and Chad Littlefield just outside Glen Rose. What's it been like covering such a nationally known story like that? Well, it's it's been really strange, Matthew, because it's I, I live um, eight miles south of Glen Rose, Texas. Now on a ranch, uh, we're pretty remote out here. Of course, um, Rough Creek Lodge, um, where this murder happened, is um, a very upscale resort. It's maybe five miles from my house. Um, it's, it began as an executive retreat. Now it's, it, it also does a lot with, them, with, with families taking vacations, but it's very upscale, um, um, really out in the middle of nowhere, but it's an absolutely breathtaking 11,000 acre resort with pheasant hunting and, um, trophy hunts and a spa and a destination restaurant, um, it's a it's an amazing thing to find uh, to find out uh, out here in the country. And uh, one night in February uh, last year, 2013, we received a phone call one Saturday night um, uh, saying that 
Chris Kyle had been murdered at Rough Creek Lodge. And um, I was very familiar with Chris Kyle because um, he had he had uh, been a uh, he had been a student at Charleston State University, where I teach. Not graduated, but he had been a student, and he had just recently, before this happened, um, he had been honored as the most distinguished young alumnus from Charleston State University. And one of our students had actually done a, a very long radio interview with him um, uh, that had run, and she ended up, um, This was her name was Kaylee Bettingfield, who's now a graduate student at Texas Tech, but, but Kaylee ended up being the last person who interviewed Chris Kyle. And I had just... Um, uh, listened to that and had transcribed the uh, the interview for her, and so it was kind of in the in the top of my mind. And so to get phone call saying that that Chris Kyle and his friend had been murdered at Rough Creek Lodge, at first I thought it was a joke, and then obviously it became um, clear that sadly it was not a joke. And um, um, the first thing I did was to call the New York Times and say, um, you're, you know, I don't know if you know this, but but Rough Creek Lodge is, I mean, as a crow flies, it's probably five miles from my house. Uh, would you like for me to help out with the coverage? And of course, they said yes. And so, um, so I, I did. Um, uh, it was so busy uh, when when this happened. Um, um, media swarmed all over. Um, law enforcement um, from two counties responded to this. Um, and um, I was told later that some of his friends who were Navy SEALs, their first reaction was that he might have been taken out by a terrorist. He had um, you know, written this book, American Sniper, in which he detailed all the kills he had made while he was in the Middle East and, and uh, was, was regarded as the military's most lethal sniper in history. And their first reaction to some of his friends thought that that he'd been taken out by someone. Um, and then to their great shock, the person who was arrested for the crime was a young uh, veteran that um, that Kyle was trying to help, um, Eddie Ray Ralph, who is now still in the U.S. County Jail in Steenville awaiting trial. The trial had been set for this past summer, and then now it's been reset for February. But Eddie Ray Ralph is accused of of, uh, of killing both uh, Chris Kyle and Chad Littlefield. And as we were able to piece together, uh, Eddie Ray Ralph's um, mother uh, worked at an elementary school where Chris Kyle's children uh, attended. And her son, uh, he'd been... Um, he, he'd had a tour in the Marines in the Middle East and then Haiti during the earthquake, and he came back um, really messed up. He'd been in and out of the A hospitals, the psychiatric hospitals. And before this happened, just like two weeks earlier, he had been discharged from a VA hospital in Dallas um, after his mother, uh, Jody, had pleaded with them not to release him. He had all sorts of problems, and um, he'd been trouble with the law before. Um, he was uh, he, he had been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And so she reached out to Chris Collins and said, can you help him? Because Chris, Chris had a, a foundation that uh, helped veterans. And they would take these veterans out. And they would go hunting. They would spend time with them. They would try to put them in civilian positions where they, uh, they might be using guns and hunting, but it was very, um, you know, stress-free. And so Chris and Chad Littlefield picked up Eddie Ray Ralph one February morning when it was, the weather was beautiful like it can be here in Texas. And, and um, I took him to Rust Creek Lodge where there is a, a hunting range with a, a sniper pit and they were out there hunting. And, and according to law enforcement authorities, they say that Ralph uh, took some of the guns and shot um, Chris Kyle and, and uh, Chad Littlefield at close range, and then stole Chris Powell's um, tricked-out black pickup truck and drove um, drove to Midlothian, where his sister lived, and she said he confessed to the crime, and she called police, and he was, I guess, on the way to Oklahoma was the story, and they, um, they apprehended him and um, arrested him and took him back to Iraq County, where he was charged with uh, double murder. And um, to have something like that happen so close to home, out you know, out here that we're in a in a rather remote area, um, was, was quite a surprise. And um, um, and and the irony, you know, the irony of it was 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 just um, uh, was quite amazing that a, that a, that a military sniper who killed so many people, uh, so many. Um, uh, enemy enemies of the United States, um, supposedly, um, that um, for him to be taken out by um, by a young veteran uh, who was messed up, um, uh, allegedly, of course, this hasn't been concluded, was just um, unbelievable to a lot of his friends. They just couldn't believe it. As I said, they, they thought for sure it must have been retaliation and then to find out that this young man was charged, um, just really, um, it really affected people, affected people deeply. I think it also raised a lot of awareness about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and the problem that a lot of veterans have when they come back and the fact that they don't get treatment. And of course, now there's been a big scandal with the, with the Veterans Administration Hospital. Well, in connecting that with our earlier conversation, what, do we call, do we classify PTSD as a mental illness? Yes, it has it has officially been put into um, the huge book that the um, American Psychi- Psychiatric um, Association has, and it's uh, there's like an encyclopedia of mental illnesses, and PTSD is now. Is now yes, it is an official, officially categorized as as a mental illness. So I guess uh, that, that you're probably going to learn a lot from this because I think you mentioned that you're you're planning on covering uh, Eddie Ray Routh's trial in February. Is that right? Uh, yes, I, I hope I certainly hope that I'm not convinced there's going to be a trial. Uh, you know, a lot can happen between now and then, but. Um, but it's been delayed so many times, you know, it's, uh, who knows when it will, when or if it will, it will, it will take place. 
Right. Well, it definitely, uh, I think it not only did it shock the nation, but coming in a, from a small town like Glen Rose, so close to that and, and people having so many connections between that and Stephenville, which is still considered uh, rural America and, and rural Texas. Uh, I'm sure it was just quite shocking all the way around for, for those small towns. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Stephenville, um, and, and it's, uh, you know, you hate for this to be a consideration, but it's also incredibly expensive to mount a capital murder trial. And um, um, I've been trying to get a handle on how much it's costing Erath County, but um, but to have, especially to have a, a prisoner who every time he goes to to, uh, to court has to have uh, a lot of security around him because he has received. Uh, death threats, and of course, there are a lot of people who uh, who were very uh, angry at him for um, um, since he's the the accused uh, accused killer. So it's cost it's cost the county a lot of money as well, and um, um, and you know it's 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 very unusual in, in a town like Steamville to have uh, a capital murder, you know, let alone a double a double murder like this. I can only imagine. Okay, so now I mentioned at the outset that you had a chance to write a book about uh, a now international company, uh, and that company is Amway. And you mentioned to me once that this was a sort of unauthorized story. Yes, it was. Uh, it was actually uh, the way I got into it. Um, my, I have an agent in New York and she said that she had a client, um, a book publisher that wanted to publish a biography, a corporate biography of, of the Amway Corporation for its 50th anniversary. And what got me interested in this was they said that, um, the publisher had secured cooperation from the company to, um, to meet with the, with the author, to, um, answer questions, make available uh, people to talk to, and um, and that really struck me because Amway uh, had a reputation for being very press shy, um, very um, very closed, um, um, and uh, you know, and it, and the reason was uh, over the years it had received a lot of negative press and. The, um, the United States government, the Federal Trade Commission, had brought suit against the company in 1975, claiming that it was a pyramid scheme. And uh, eventually, after several years, the 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 outcome of this um, of this case was that um, Amway was found not to be a pyramid scheme because it uh, because it actually had products. It wasn't just uh, about about uh, developing tiers of, of sellers that they actually had products. And so opened this whole industry of multi-level marketing. Um, and, um, uh, we see it, uh, we see it today in many places. Um, you know, Mary Kay was, uh, was one of these companies. Um, um, and there, there are many, many, you know, Herbalife, there are many other, there are many others that use, uh, that rely on a network of distributors, a network of sellers to move the product. They don't have physical stores. 
And so, um, so I got interested in that. I thought, you know, this was, I thought it was a fascinating company. It would be really interesting to finally kind of get the inside track. And 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 soon after, I you know signed a contract and and uh, working on the book, um, they uh, the company's founders got cold feet and decided they didn't want to cooperate. And, uh, and, and of course I had a contract to write a book, so I had to write it and, and, uh, which I did. Um, uh, I didn't have a single person from the company agree to talk to me. And because of that, a lot of people, uh, in the company who were distributors did not want to talk to me. And so I basically ended up doing an unauthorized biography of, of my corporation and, and, um, uh, you know, there've been some, there've been some, uh, reviewers who've who said, well, I only focused on the negative. Well, I tried to be as fair as I could, but frankly, the people who had positive stories, a lot of them didn't want to talk to me because uh, Amway is a very, as I said, a very, um, a very close company. And I had a lot of people say, well, unless this is a sanctioned biography by the, by the, the management, we, we really can't talk to you. So, um, I still find it to be a very interesting company. It started out in the United States, basically selling soap. Um, I remember when I was a kid, you know, there were Amway distributors down the street. Um, these days, uh, you don't see you don't see Amway as much as, as as you did in the past here in the United States because their markets have gone overseas. Uh, China is now its largest market with about forty percent of its. Um, uh, of the products it sells or sold it's sold in China, um, some of the countries in in Eastern Europe that uh, were formerly communists are now capitalist have become big uh, and like countries. Um, I remember when the um, Berlin Wall fell. I remember Jay Leno uh, making a joke about uh, of all the people who some of the first people who are rushing through. The wall were Amway distributors hoping to get to, hoping to get to some of the uh, the, the new capitalists over in Eastern Europe and and um, and you know Asia, Eastern Europe have been really big uh, markets for them as well as South America. So, um, you know, it's become a global company that started out making you know, soap and and selling soap and. And, and vitamins and a lot of health and, and beauty products and health and beauty products. Yeah. And, and now it's become this, this global, uh, global corporation. And, and, um, uh, it's doing very, very well in Asia. You know, I think, uh, they actually have, uh, spawned off some other companies by other names as of late. Yes. So, uh, they're, they're evidently doing successful overseas, uh, in their in their adventures, <laughs> their business ventures. You know, they're selling. Well, I mean, what what they sold here was the American dream. You know that if you work hard, uh, you can also you know you can you can you can do well. There are people who I think thought they were going to get rich quick. Even though the company says, I mean, the company founders said, you know, anybody looking for a magic bullet, you know, surefire gimmick to make a millionaire overnight, you know, they're looking in the wrong place. But a lot of people just, just felt like, you know, they had this potential to become millionaires. And, 
if you look at Anlay's own um, marketing materials, their own brochures that they put out, if you look at the fine print uh, in the footnotes <laughs> of this brochure, as I did, it will it will they will tell you that a very small percentage. I mean, we're talking less than one percent of their of their distributors uh, um, make um, uh, $12,000, um, fewer even, fewer makes, you know, more than that $40,000 a year, and that the average monthly gross income for an active, independent business owner for Amway was $115. So, you know, it pays Just to not worth your time, friend. is it? <laughs> right, right. But a lot of people felt like, you know, they were going to get rich quick. Um, and I think what's happened now overseas is, is a lot of these countries, and certainly China is a is a is a huge market for them because you, you know the population is is enormous first of all, but you you have a lot of people who think you know I'm going to try I'm going to go the capitalist way and I'm going to try to get rich and um, it will be interesting to see if the experience in China is any different than it is in North America because that didn't happen to a lot of people in North America. And then what happened was a lot of these folks who, who didn't get rich have written um, exposés um, about Amway. One of the challenges of writing the book was that everything I had found in my research about the company was either written by people who just said it was, you know, the most wonderful thing in the world or people who said, you know, that, that they, that it was a, a pyramid scheme that you couldn't uh, make any money at it, that it was um, a cult. I mean, there have been all sorts of um, uh, charges leveraged. And so what I tried to do was was write a book that was journalistically journalistically balanced. Um, um, but it's going to be an interesting, an interesting company to watch as it spreads around the globe. Yeah, I can only imagine. Catherine, thank you so much for being on the program today. Well, you're welcome. I enjoyed it, and I think I think this is a great idea. I hope I hope it becomes very successful, and I can't wait to see what other people you end up interviewing, Matthew, and where this goes. Well, you can reach Catherine on her Facebook page, The Glenrose Current. You can buy her a book at Amazon and other retailers. And of course, you can find many of her articles at glenrosecurrent.com, in addition to the archives at nytimes.com and texasmonthly.com. Now, just a reminder that Voices of Texas is supported by your voluntary patronage. So please visit patreon.com slash Voices of Texas to contribute. Don't forget too to interact on Facebook and Twitter. And if you know someone who would make a great guest on the show, click on the nominate someone link over at voicesoftexas.com and complete the form. I will be back next week with another interesting Texan here on Voices of Texas. Opinions of guests, co-hosts, and others appearing on this podcast are not necessarily the views of its host, producer, or affiliates. No part of this podcast may be reproduced or retransmitted in any way over any medium without express written consent of the producer. 